You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good morning, everyone. It doesn't really feel like August 11th for some reason, and maybe that's due to our three boys already being back at school for preseason sports practices. You can typically see the front range over my shoulder, but due to the smoke in Denver, uh, we've got no front range and some pretty bad air quality. Some of you may have seen the alarming UN report on climate change that was released earlier this week. As someone who's spent most of the summer in the hot, smoky, and waterless West between Montana, Idaho, and Colorado, I can only hope that government officials and corporate America understand the risk to life, health, and happiness that climate change presents and start to take some dramatic action to reverse the hot, smoky, and dry trends that appear to be accelerating every year. Uh, Walker and Dunlop and JBG Smith both have extensive ESG programs in place that focus on reducing our company's carbon footprints and also developing and financing increasingly environmentally friendly buildings. We need more corporate leaders like Walker and Dunlop and JBG to continue to push these issues forward. The equity markets reacted positively this morning to the inflation numbers that came out. The 10-year has had quite a last month, dipping below 1.20% earlier this month, now sitting at about 1.35%. It's hard to think that the Dow over 35,000 and a 135 10-year isn't about as Goldilocks an economic scenario as we could possibly ask for. Southwest Airlines did come out this morning with, with an earnings warning that um, they had to temper their Q3 guidance due to the Delta variant um, spooling up and them seeing cancellations on trips. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing Matt's views on back to office and the future of work in just a moment. Uh, But the inflation numbers this morning and data points like used car prices in the month of June having jumped 10% and then flattening in July to 0%, do add strength to Chairman Jerome Powell's commentary and belief that the inflationary pressures we are seeing in the economy today are going to be transitory and not permanent. Um, Time obviously will tell on that. So let me turn to uh, my guest. Matt is an old friend, an incredible CEO, and a wonderful father, spouse, and community member. Matt is the CEO of JBG Smith and a member of the Board of Trustees. Prior to the formation of JBG Smith, Matt served as managing partner of the JBG companies and a member of the firm's executive committee and investment committees and was co-head of JBG's investment group. Prior to joining JBG in 2004, Matt was co-founder of ODAC Inc., a media software company, and worked in private equity and investment banking with the Thomas Lee Companies and Goldman Sachs. Matt holds a Bachelor's of Arts with honors from Dartmouth College and a Master's of Business Administration from Harvard Business School. So, Matt, let's start here. You grew up in St. Louis, middle-class family, two sisters. 
first of all, I need to you to confirm for me that Damian Lewis isn't your twin brother separated at birth who now lives in the UK. But tell me about, go back to the what the headmaster of your high school would say to me about Matt Kelly, the redheaded senior at his high school heading off to Dartmouth College. What was Matt Kelly like as he was just about to bound out to college? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I would, I would love, he, he knew me reasonably well too, because his daughter was in my class. So, you know, he, he knew our class probably better than most, you know, I think I was at that time, you know, a wide eyed, probably pretty clueless about the world kid headed farther away from home than I'd ever been. And, you know, I was, I was full of confidence and no experience. And, you know, probably as you want it to be when you venture far and wide like that, I, I felt like that was uh, something I had to do. My, my father immigrated from Ireland and my, my mother was born in Ohio, grew up in Indiana. Both of them, you know, were transplants to St. Louis. I, I was of the view that I had to, I had to go far away. That's just what you do in our family. You go, you go as far as you can and explore and for me, you know, the New England was that. I, I, did, I couldn't tell one New England state from another at the time. And it was a real adventure. It was better than I thought it would be. I think, you know, when I, when I look at uh, the, the path I've, I've taken, you know, it's really been enabled by a, a lot of other people. And in particular, you know, to your question about my high school, I, I, I was fortunate to go to a great school in St. Louis where we were taught a lot about how to hold yourself in the world and how to take on new challenges and risks. And it was really, I think, a, a huge part of how I was able to uh, even think, you know, that, that far from where I grew up. I think the one person who might be the most surprised would probably be my first grade teacher because I had to repeat first grade because I was, I was always in the principal's office for, you know, breaking some rule or, you know, getting into trouble somehow, some way. Uh, so I went from being the youngest kid, being the oldest kid in the class, she might say, wow, that kid. Interesting. That kid. Uh, he made didn't it. see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> so between years at Dartmouth, I don't even know where it is, but you drove a UPS truck in Earth City, Missouri. First of all, how'd you end up in Earth City, Missouri, driving a UPS truck? And second of all, did they let you keep the uniform? Mm, good question. That's what everybody wanted to know. So UPS uh, operates out of hubs and the hub was located in Earth City. That's where you drive to every morning, put on your uniform. You'd be, you know, given your truck loaded with packages. You pretty much drove the same route every day. Mine was a commercial route. And uh, you can keep your uniform at the end of the job if you're willing to forego your last paycheck. And uh, since I was desperate uh, for money of any amount, at that time in my life, I uh, was not willing to make that trade. It would have made for a great Halloween costume, but it wasn't worth what I had to pay. It was, it's funny you asked that question about UPS because it was, a, it was a job I had in college. You had to be 21 to be a truck driver. And I got the job right after my 21st birthday. And I did it during the holiday surge season. And uh, I remember when I was coming out of college, my senior year, I was filling out my resume and I didn't have enough stuff for my resume. Not like young people today who, you know, have, uh, you know, won Olympic medals and, you know, uh, invented, you know, new forms of battery technology by the time they get out of high school. I didn't have any of that. So 
I was struggling to decide whether I should put UPS on my resume or not. I thought, are these, are these Wall Street big shots going to laugh this Midwestern bumpkin out of the room because he put that he was a truck driver on his resume? And I realized if I didn't put it on there, there'd be too much white space. So I just did it. And it was, the, it was at the very bottom. And I remember I had a day of interviews at what was then Smith Barney. And I wasn't asked about anything on my resume other than the UPS truck driving job. And almost every person asked me that question about the uniform. Another example of just, uh, you know, what a learning experience each of these different steps for me was. Do you think about that in the sense of when you're recruiting people to JBG, looking for the UPS truck driving job and not the magna cum laude from Dartmouth? Yeah, absolutely. It It's hard to do, right? You have you have to work harder to find the people who didn't have, you know, the, the more, you know, conventional, traditional pedigree path. And, you know, when you're, as you get larger and as you hire more, you don't always have the bandwidth and the time and the resources to, to go looking in places where you might not uh, come across those, those types of folks. Uh, but it's important, you know, it's, it's a way to, to make sure that you, you don't end up you know, with everybody thinking the same way with some level of groupthink in an organization. You, you, you've got to have people who come from all different backgrounds and all different walks of life uh, to have that to have that variety for sure. Did you keep the fact that you were at Dartmouth a secret as you were driving for UPS, or did everybody else that you were driving with know that you were a Ivy League student? Yeah, I was very very quiet about it. They actually figured it out. So somebody figured it out because I had gotten the job through a referral of one of my sister's friends who, who was actually in the uh, legal department at UPS. He had referred me to the opening and shared with somebody on the team where I worked that, you know, I was a college student. So my nickname actually became college. People would just yell college, you know, and that was my nickname. And, you know, I was going to these factory uh, these warehouses picking up, you know, factory packages and the, you know, all the people who worked there were always trying to, you know, set me up with other people working on the factory floor. And, you know, they wanted nothing to do with, you know, this, you know, this college kid, nothing at all. But the one thing that I found, you know, that was really eye-opening, everybody that I worked alongside, they were just as ambitious, just as type A, just as driven, motivated. They just, they didn't have the educational opportunities that I had. And, you know, many of them had only finished high school, maybe some community college. And they were working it in a well-paid job for what it was, but it really struck me that, you know, in, in many, many ways, the only difference between me and most of those people was the opportunity that I was, I was born into or, or had by virtue of, you know, my my parents and their station in life. And, uh, you know, intellectually, I think, understand that, but seeing it uh, up close and personal, when you work alongside people like that, you really, you know, it really uh, sits with you much more strongly when you experience it that way. Yeah. So you went to Goldman and then ended up at Thomas Lee. You've told me before of one of the former partners of Thomas Lee, Soren Oberg, who was an associate at that time, working with you and teaching you some pretty important things at a very young age as you just come into Thomas Lee Partners. What was it that Soren taught you that was so valuable to you as a, as a newly minted analyst at Thomas Lee Partners? Soren's a terrific guy and was a, a first-class mentor 
he's from a little town called Moose Jaw, Canada in Saskatchewan, which is, you know, it's about as small town as it gets. And he, he had ended up at Thomas Lee post business school and was my immediate boss. And we would work on deals together. And in any of these deals, there are negotiations over legal documents. And what he would do is he would kind of walk through almost like a mock uh, dry, a dry run of what we were going to negotiate for. And I would take notes and then he would, he would allow me to take the lead to basically practice doing this, uh, things that I'd never done, doing it for the first time with him sitting there. And it was far and away the best way to learn it uh, versus just sitting to the side and watching him do it. Uh, He was more qualified to do it. He was really the one driving it, but he was letting me, you know, basically, you know, grab the wheel with both hands and and practice this skill in a way that was far more hands-on and enabled me to learn much, much faster than, you know, anybody else I'd, I'd worked with in that, in that kind of capacity. So you left Thomas Lee, you did your startup, your technology company, and then you came to JBG. Um, I remember you started at JBG just about the same time I started at WND. And um, I remember Mike Glosserman saying to me, we've got this whip smart young guy from Thomas Lee, who's come to join us. You and I had a great mutual friend, Kent Weldon, who told me that you were moving to Washington to work for JBG. And you joined what at that time was really a, 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 a private partnership that was in the process of becoming increasingly institutionalized of raising capital from big institutions. But it was at that time a much, much smaller company than it is today. And it had just embarked upon going from being a private partnership to kind of becoming an institutional firm. Talk about joining JBG at that size and what that was like as a work experience. And then we'll talk through kind of the evolution from private partnership into institutional money manager into publicly traded REIT. Yeah. So JBG, when I joined, was little over 100 people, was raising its fund four, but essentially had one investor, which was the Yale Endowment. In addition to Yale, a lot of very small high net worth investors, small in terms of their investment size relative to Yale. I, I joined, so I joined in 2004, as you said, you know, this was uh, a very hot uh, year in the real estate job market. And so, you know, anybody coming out of any business school in the country was, was uh, you know, was receiving multiple offers and, and the industry was, was really starting to heat up. And JBG was the firm that offered me the least amount of cash, uh, no promise of equity, and you know was not in London or New York where most of my friends from HBS you know were taking jobs. And a lot of my friends scratched their head and said, you know, what are you doing? Why are you going there? Why are you going to DC? And the the reason I I was really drawn to the place was in part because uh, it it was I was referred to JBG by a guy named Bill Porvu who um, was, had, had at the time retired from teaching real estate at HBS, but who had uh, written a book called The Real Estate Game, which I read and, and, and found fascinating. And, and it had a number of folks in the book that I knew. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go seek this guy out. He lives in Cambridge and talk to him and say, you know, uh, real estate is, is an industry I'm really interested in. What do you think? And so he, he said, uh, you should talk to JBG. So I said, okay, well, this guy is pretty smart. I'll talk to JBG. 
little did I know, so he was on the Yale Investment Committee and he was a founding, he was one of the founders of Baupost. I mean, he's a you know towering intellect. He Yale had just committed a couple of years prior to JBG. And then and then I come along, referred by one of the same guys who had helped uh, JBG secure an investment from Yale. And I, I almost didn't take the job because I felt like the interview process was too easy. It didn't seem like anyone was really, you know, grilling me and challenging me. You know, Glosserman's listening to this, so be careful yeah. what you say. Well, I and I thought, God, you know, no one seems to be, you know, really giving me a hard time here. And it's and it, I think it's because I had Bill Porvu had, you know, recommended me, and it was amazing the power of, you know, that that door uh, having been opened. But but the the thing that really drew me to the place was the fact that just the feeling I had about the people. And my dad had always told me, you know, some people will take, you know, the the highest immediate paycheck or some people will take the best title, but those are deceptive targets. What you really need to do is he would describe it and say, hit your wagon to the right horse, Uh, follow the right people and people who, you know, are going to treat you well as evidenced by how they treat each other and you won't go wrong. And I had a feeling in how transparent Mike and Rob and Ben and Porter and Brian, all the partners there that I met with were very open and transparent about what the opportunity was, about what they were looking for. And it's the only job I've, uh, I've ever had where what was represented when I was coming through the interview process actually turned out to be the case once I got in the door. Uh, in terms of how they describe their culture and how they work and and what their weaknesses were and what their strengths were. And it just gave me a, in, a, in my gut, a really positive feeling that these were good people and that I was going to learn a lot here, whether I stuck with it or stayed at this firm or not, it was going to be a great place for me to start coming out of business school. You mentioned um, Yale being one of JBG's, well, cornerstone investors. You spent a bunch of time with the legendary investor, David Swenson, who unfortunately passed away this past year. What, what was unique about David Swenson? I mean, his his returns are so unique and so special, but what was it that you saw, Matt, in Swenson? You've met with tons and tons of institutional investors over your career. What was it about Swenson in either his style, his mannerisms, his questions that made him so unique? David was exceptional in a lot of ways. He was a brilliant investor. And he was also someone who stuck to a handful of key principles and and really never deviated. One of those was selecting good good teams, good people. They, They liked to be a big anchor investor early in the life of a fund or a team or whatever. And, and they would, they would go big. They wouldn't start with a small commitment and then grow it. They would you know, our first Yale fund, Yale was $150 million out of $210 million. So it was a very large commitment. They had spent a lot of time doing their homework. I mean, they must've done over a hundred reference checks, not the ones we gave them, but everybody else they could call. And so they, they're very thorough. Alan Foreman and Ellen Schumann were two people that we knew along the way who, who worked for David. Alan is is still there today. Ellen uh, has since started her own firm. Both of them are on the JBG Smith board uh, and have been terrific advisors, mentors, partners. David, David was not afraid to really go big and 
as long as he felt like he had picked a good team and he was well aligned with you, he would stay very plugged in to what you were doing. And, and by he, I mean, really Alan and, and the team, but they would get out of your way and they would say, look, you do what you think is right as an investor and we will support you. And I can remember during the depths of the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, we had some investors who were quietly, sheepishly asking us not to call capital because they themselves were very constrained. Yale was not one of them. And I won't tell you who, who they were, but Yale, in fact, was saying the opposite. They said, look, if you see deep value, if you see real opportunity in this market, go for it. And, and we will be there for you. And, and Yale had many of the same, I think, concerns about liquidity and allocations and everything else that everyone did at that time. But they didn't let that get in the way of being great partners and, and doing the right thing. And David uh, was never afraid to really concentrate and really go big and really, no kidding, back the people that he had invested with. So today, there's no Jacobs, there's no Brown, and there's no Gildenhorn at JBG. I think I'm right on that. Am I right on that, Matt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. That's so right. if you if you back up to when you joined JBG, Ben and Donald were still around, um, Ben particularly. Then Mike started running the firm and there were some partners who'd been there for quite some time, but hard to see many companies that are a partnership of three people move to the next generation where there's not a family member in that next generation and then become a publicly traded company. Talk about kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly of that transition from being a private partnership to being a public company. What is becoming a public company brought you that's the good? And what's the flip side of what you've lost by no longer being a private partnership? Yeah. So we we did, you're right. We did go through a lot of change. The firm was accustomed to change by the time I came along because of those handoffs. You know, there, there were the original three founders. Ben was the was active for the longest of, of those original uh, named founders. And then you had Mike and Rob and Brian. And so by the time I came along and my partner, uh, James Eicher, and a number of others uh, in the ownership of the company, by the time we came along, JBG had gone through management succession before. So it wasn't a first time. There were, however, other new dynamics unfolding when we went public. If you rewind the tape, at the time, 2017, we were going from being private to being public. We were going from being a partnership to being a, a more hierarchical uh, public company structure with a CEO. We'd never had a CEO. You know, I had never been a CEO. I had never worked at a public company, let alone run one. Uh, I was at Goldman Sachs before they went public. So we're merging with another company. The, the Vornado Charles E. Smith portfolio was almost quadrupling the size of, of assets that we were overseeing and uh, merging, doing all the things, you know, merging accounting systems, payroll systems, having to figure out who was going to, you know, run the engineering group, who was going to do this, who was going to do that, hiring a lot of new people to implement the public company uh, infrastructure. I would say when you kind of fast forward back to today, you know, what are the things that we've gained from that? I do think 
our, our processes and our systems and other things. We were doing a great job, I really do believe, as a private company. But there really is no comparison in how many things are managed and overseen and done in the public company context. It's more rigorous. It just is. In, in part because it has to be because of internal audit functions that private companies aren't required to have and other things. I think in terms of the, the, the thing that we have worked hardest to try to maintain is our entrepreneurial agility. And that's difficult as you get bigger. It just is. You, you can't quite give people as much autonomy as you might have done in the past because you know, you are, you're more accountable. And everybody needs to be. And so you need to have a little more process and more systems. And I think we have done a good job of navigating that transition without losing our entrepreneurial edge, but also still satisfying all the requirements of this new format. You know, you may have seen we were ranked on the top three of of the Washington Post's best workplaces last year which you know, we take a lot of pride in. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that our team's really engaged. We do still distribute authority and responsibility. We give people a lot of rope and a lot of room to run. And that's something that Mike and Ben and Rob and Brian and the other founders of the firm really, really taught me and the rest of us is that if you want good people to stay, you have to give them really meaningful work. And meaningful work comes from having enough ownership over what you're doing and not feeling like you're ever micromanaged and that you have runway to perform and prove yourself. And we've really worked very hard to try to maintain that in the public context. You underscored the fact that you'd never been a CEO before you became CEO. And you mentioned 2017. You won the Washington Business Journal CEO of the Year Award in 2017. So I uh, that may be a record, Matt, of, of being placed in your first CEO role and winning CEO of the Year in your first year as CEO. In one of the videos that the Washington Business Journal put out around that, John Wilkinson says in it, you like to break the status quo. How have you broken the status quo? Because what I sense and have watched is you've taken this incredible firm and allowed it to continue to grow. You've been a very participatory member of the senior leadership team. And then at the appropriate time, you stepped forward and now have taken JBG to all new heights. But I've never sort of viewed you as a status quo breaker. What, how, how should I, what, what am I missing about the Matt Kelly story that says that you're a status quo breaker? It's, it's a good question. I, I don't know if I would say that's my thing, you know, that I'm a status quo breaker uh, per se. I think maybe what John meant, and I, I love John, he's one of my closest friends and a really successful entrepreneur in his own right. I think what he, what he may have meant was that I tend not to just take things at face value without really questioning why. And uh, when someone says, well, we need to do it this way because that's the way it's always been done. That to me isn't a sufficient answer. It's not a good enough reason to keep doing something the same way it's always been done. You may, in fact, keep doing it that way, but uh, I like to understand why things are done and to really assess does it make sense to continue to do them that way? And we take that approach to chasing new deals, to pursuing new prospects. You know, when when we were when we were pursuing the Amazon HQ2 transaction, there was a process that was put in place that we were expected to follow, and we did. But we did everything in our power that we could to stand 
to stand tall and to really try to distinguish ourselves uh, from our competitors in the eyes of the folks that, that we were trying to, to woo to the area and invested money in, in marketing resources and in uh, supplementing and supporting what, what the Commonwealth of Virginia, what Arlington County were doing in ways that I'm not sure others were doing because we said, this is a pull out all the stops effort. And I don't care what the, what the guidelines say about how we're supposed to pursue this. Let's, let's do it our way because we have a sense that this is likely to prevail. And so I, I think what it gets at really is more just not necessarily accepting something as, okay, I understand that's why others do this, but why are we doing it? And should we be doing it that way? Or should we maybe take a different approach? So JVG owns and manages over 20 million square feet of office, multifamily, and retail assets, um, all in the DC area. Before we dive into sort of asset classes in office and retail hospitality, uh, not hospitality, uh, multifamily, the JBG's focus has been just on the greater Washington area since the firm was founded actually as a law firm uh, way back when in 1960. And I know for a fact that you all have been asked numerous times by all sorts of different people to broaden your impact and go outside of DC and put a flag in New York and put a flag in San Francisco. And you all have remained focused on just the greater Washington area. Talk about that focus, Matt, and how that's been able to drive value for your investors beyond what you think you could do if you were to broaden the reach of JVG? Yeah, it's a good question. We, and we do get that question a lot. We often compete for deals and for tenants and, and others with players who are in other markets. And we see the way in which our local position and local scale really give us an edge. And that comes through in broker relationships and tenant relationships. There is no great substitute for having that local presence. Now, lots of companies have a local presence in many markets, and that strategy works for them. And never say never as to you know, where we may go one day, but for the time being and, and for our history, we have always had considerable opportunity in our home market. And the opportunities in that market have, have always stood out as, as the ones that we're best equipped to monetize and, and create value from. And you just look at what you laid out. You know, we have almost a 15 million square foot development pipeline. And there's no one better positioned in our market to harvest value from that than we are. Over half of the company is in the shadow of HQ2 right now, which is just in the first couple of years of what is likely to be a multi-decade run of incredible growth. I mean, Amazon alone is going to increase the daytime population of the national landing submarket by almost 70% in the next decade. And there's nowhere else in the country we could invest and find similar tailwinds from a growth perspective. And most of our company is concentrated in that opportunity set. And so uh, while we have at times evaluated that question of uh, are there better opportunities elsewhere and should we look at those? Inevitably, when we do it, something else in our home market pops up that's very rich and appealing and attractive as an opportunity set. And we turn our attention back to that and say, you know what, let's not pay, as we call it, you know, the, the out-of-town tax going into somebody else's market where there's a local JBG who, who may eat our lunch. Let's keep doing that here in this market where we have deep expertise and relationships. 
I'm wildly jealous of the fact that you don't have to travel to any of your offices on an airplane because I get the the job of traveling to 38 offices across the country and spend much more time on airplanes than you do. But I'm curious as it relates to diversification and whether you hear from investors that say, you know, it is the federal city when you have a government in place like we do right now that seems to be bringing up spending bills as quickly as they possibly can. My assumption would be that investors say, well, that's great. That means more government contracts. That means more lobbyists. That means more lawyers. And that means positive for JBG. There have also been administrations that peel back on government spending. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, can we ever get another lease from a law firm or from a lobbying firm? Does has have you? I'm assuming that the view is that you have diversified enough in both asset classes as well as sub-markets to the greater DC, Maryland, Virginia area that you're not directly tied to just sort of government spending. And therefore, you've been able to sort of disassociate and diversify by saying, look, the, the sub-market of Fairfax, Virginia really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the federal government spending. We have found real value in Fairfax, and therefore, that's why we're building a multifamily property there. Am I right on that? Yeah, I think it's uh, a bit of both, right? I, I think what you said is right, that we are much, much more we're not just an office company. Uh, we're certainly not just a government office company. Office today is about 70% of what we do, but you know, we're we're on record saying that our intention in the next couple of years is to is to migrate the company to be majority multifamily. And, and we will get there by selling some of the non-core office that we picked up in the uh, Vernado merger, which for tax reasons we couldn't really start selling until last year. And uh, by building and acquiring uh, new multifamily assets in our development pipeline, the federal government is our largest tenant. And so uh, and, you know, government, government contractors uh, are a meaningful part of our office business. When you look at the future, the biggest part of our story is the Amazon growth story. And uh, fast forward to a day in the future when we have completed the portfolio uh, recycling and other things that I talked about, we will be office in National Landing primarily as to our office portfolio. And then majority of the company will be multifamily in National Landing and elsewhere. And that's, a, that's an economic growth picture that is very different. The DC office market writ large, it's very different from what government spending might mean for those types of office buildings. Much of the office that we control in that context is it's national landing. It's, it's really the, the Amazon tech growth story and one that we think is likely to play out uh, much like it did in South Lake Union, Seattle, where Amazon grew in almost the same fashion from about 5,000 people to over 50,000 people in the course of a decade. And other users filled in uh, north of 4 million square feet in addition to what Amazon did. And we, we think that's very likely to unfold in national landing. And so does that mean the government and what it does won't be important? No, that will still be important. It will still be a critical anchor. Many of the tech tenants that we see looking at the Washington market come there because it has a rich talent pool and they that's their primary input is talent. The other factors that are increasingly important are proximity to regulators, wanting to have an open dialogue with Washington, with lawmakers, with regulators, those who are setting policy, because it's becoming increasingly important to the tech sector in general. And then on top of that, they're looking for cities that are not as constrained from a growth perspective 
as, say, New York or San Francisco. And while Washington does have a need for a lot more housing, while it does have its own you know, traffic, transportation, congestion, it's nothing like those other cities. And so when you line it up against the labor pool, it, it measures uh, very favorably from a, from a tech employer perspective. And we think by controlling that concentration of office in that submarket, National Landing, uh, we'll be right, right in the center of the bullseye of where a lot of those folks want to be for all those different reasons. So I want to loop back to the to the growth in the Amazon HQ2 development and all that in a second. But before we move off that, in, in Q2, you all had to either defer, reserve for, or abate about $2.5 million of rent. Was that predominantly in your office portfolio matter? Was that both in office and multi as it relates to that? And on top of that, what's your view right now as it relates to back to work? Because obviously you've got this extensive office portfolio, tenants who run the full gambit from the federal government all the way across to much, much smaller employers. Um, what's your view given where we stand today on back to work? Yeah, great question. You know, when you when you look at COVID and its impact on our business, the tenant group that has been most impacted are retailers. And so a lot of our reserves are around, you know, amenity retail uses like restaurants and bars, uh, not surprisingly. Parking has also taken a hit because right. people aren't driving into those office buildings. Those numbers have been ticking up <clears throat> slowly, but it's still, you know, a, a fraction of what it was pre-COVID. We do have one one hotel that suffered a hit as well. That's a that's a small part of it. You know, the biggest question I think on everybody's mind is how how do people use their office space when all this is over? And I feel right now like you know I'm living the second of two summers, right? Where the first summer was a, felt like a post-COVID summer, and now I feel like I'm back into you know this is deja vu. Uh, the COVID haunted house, you know, you never know what's around in the next corner. And uh, we're seeing more office users push their plans to return to the office back. Some are pushing them back a month to October. Uh, you may have seen Amazon announce they're pushing theirs back to, to January. And I think the truth is no one really knows how we will engage with office space as companies, as employers in the future because the future is not here yet. We were really hoping it was going to be here September 7th. I think a lot of people were, and I think a lot of companies are likely going to, to adjust their plans, hopefully only for the short term. What we're hearing from most employers is that they feel they must offer some level of hybrid work as a workplace amenity because people, people demand it and they don't want to find themselves with a labor shortage. It's a tough hiring market already. And if you try to have everyone come back to the office five days a week, you are not going to like the result with uh, what your employees do in voting with their feet. And many of them are gravitating to a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday plan. Maybe it's four days on the aggressive end. I don't know of anyone who's doing five days. We're hearing from architects that uh, there is a lot of rethinking around how space will be utilized and how common area spaces will be utilized, what kind of IT will be needed. The focus is much more heavily on collaborative space because the view is if people are in the office fewer days a week, we want to make sure more of that time that they are in the office is spent collaborating. The thing that is tough to solve for is the fact that the vast majority of employees don't want 
to live in a clean desk, hot desk format. They, they want their own dedicated space when they're there. And that may, in fact, foreclose or forestall the ability of companies to really shrink their footprint much at all. So I'm not sure, and we don't hear much of it, about companies looking at this as a cost-saving opportunity. Uh, we hear much more focus on how do I manage this next phase in a way where I just don't screw it up. I don't sound tone deaf to my employees and I create a space that's welcoming and inviting where they actually want to come back to the office. Because I think people are starting to see a bit of a degradation of, of, the, of engagement, of collaboration, of just people feeling like they're part of the team. And you can maintain course and speed with inertia for a while, which we did through the pandemic. It's really hard to, to do U-turns and to really get creative and you know, disrupt what you're doing in ways that are, that are productive if you're doing it all virtually. It, versions of it can be done, but we, we hear consistently that folks really want to get their people back to the office some days a week. And it's got to be a totally different thing as it relates to the outlook for lease renewals right now in your portfolio to the degree that a year ago, a lot of people were sort of like, no idea when we're back in the office and I've got a big lease coming up, I may not sign it. My assumption, Matt, would be that today, if you've got a big lease renewal coming up, People are negotiating that lease renewal because they know they're going to go back to the office. It's just a matter of sort of, is it October, February of next year with that question mark of, do I need the office spaces off the table? Is that fair? Or are you seeing people still say, don't know if I actually need the space? I think that's fair. We've actually been pleasantly surprised that most of our, the vast majority of our renewal activity has been, you know, medium and long-term. Uh, we've seen a lot of five, seven, 10-year deals coming out of covid there are, uh, I think, a number of employers that if, if they're very small, uh, like, like we've seen in the district in D.C. proper, and, and we've sold most of our D.C. proper assets, uh, but we, we see this through some of the third-party assets we manage, that a number of small operations, small businesses have let their leases expire and have said, you know, we've got 10 people, we're all working from home, we're just going to let it lapse and when it's safe to get back in the water again, we'll just go out and we'll lease space somewhere because the market's not that tight and I'm not worried about not finding space. And so we're starting to see some of that come through in the numbers of new tenants in the market. We're seeing a lot of new tenants uh, that are larger restarting processes that were on hold during COVID, uh, during the heights of the pandemic. Renewals are in line with where they were pre-pandemic only there are more of them and because folks are generally not initiating searches for new and different space, they're staying where they are, but they're not pushing for short-term deals the way you might have expected that they would just to see how this plays out. I think most employers are comfortable making a call that says, I know I'm going to continue using office space, not exactly sure how, not exactly sure how many days a week but we're not going to all virtual. That, that doesn't work. And how they come back and how that then translates down the road into space utilization is, is still an open question. And it's one that may involve individual neighborhoods, clusters in certain submarkets needing potentially more co-working space, more flex space, more meeting spaces that are amenity-driven and amenity-like to the underlying base of office tenants who are there 
in uh, days of the week that are necessarily not that easy to predict right now. So as you focus on kind of transitioning slash transforming JBG from having a portfolio that was more weighted on office to more weighted on multi, you have one multi project that's under development right now. I think it's an 800 unit project that's under construction right now, a bunch in the pipeline. As you look at the market today, does your do your numbers and thoughts right now say, let's put more shovels in the ground, even though the cost of construction is going up, getting labor is tough and all the other things? Or are you a buyer at these sort of ridiculously low cap rates on the multifamily side? What's the, as you sit around with your team and trying to grow the multi-portfolio, is it a build or is it a buy scenario today? Uh, it's a great question. So we, we have a pretty unique hand when you look at our pipeline of new development, because we have plus or minus 5,000 units. We've got, as you said, uh, almost 1,000 units, 808 units under construction right now, 1900 Crystal Drive to 300 foot tall towers overlooking Reagan Airport, the district, the river. It'll be the best new product in all of Northern Virginia when it's, when it's completed in a couple of years. We have in Amazon, as I mentioned earlier, this unbelievable demand driver. Amazon is uh, over 1,600 people today, growing to uh, just under 40,000 in the next decade. They'll be 10 times their current size just within the next five years. And when you fast forward to the day when they're even halfway through their hiring trajectory, their people alone will generate enough demand to support almost the entirety of our pipeline if we could build it all right this second, which, by the way, we can't because we still have to get some of it entitled, some of it designed and ready to go. So when we look at our opportunity set, Amazon is a dramatic accelerant, and we will not be able to keep up with the demand, uh, even going as fast as we can and doing as much as we can. We control over three quarters of the unencumbered new supply in that submarket. So we really are the provider of housing uh, to everybody, but in particular to a lot of those new Amazonians. And we know from uh, the experience of South Lake Union in Seattle, roughly uh, 20, 25% of their team like to walk and bike to work. And so you do the math on that at 40,000, that's roughly 8,000 potential residents. And uh, you know we don't have that much housing in our pipeline. So, so the math is incredibly favorable. So we, we look at long-term growth trajectory in rents as one metric that attracts us to a new investment opportunity. So we're, we're builders in national landing for sure. Uh, but we also look at upfront price point. And to your comment, uh, cap rates on housing right now are incredibly low. Some of those cap rates, you, ha you have to really parse what's a pre-COVID or post-COVID number in terms of rents. Rents in the DC area are, are in our portfolio are back uh, almost to exactly where they were pre-COVID. So we've recovered a lot of what was lost in, in the depths, but it's very difficult to find real value. And uh, so we're focusing when we're trading out of office buildings that are non-core and we want to redeploy the capital right away, but we don't necessarily have a, a development opportunity teed up. You know, we're, we're looking at probably 20 deals for every one that we make. And it's usually a deal that has uh, some funky dynamic with ownership or, you know, the sales process or is coming online in a submarket where we see a lot of exciting growth in the future. And, you know, that's places like Union Market, like the ballpark, 
like other neighborhoods where we know a lot of the office tenants, especially tech tenants, want to go. And so that's that's where we're focusing our efforts. The other the other question mark is construction costs. What happens there? We see lumber prices are coming down now, but they spiked to crazy levels. 1900 Crystal Drive, we could have started in March of 2020, and we checked our swing because we we thought we gambled, and thankfully uh, it paid off that contractors would tighten their pricing coming into COVID into the COVID winter of 2020, which they did. And we ended up, we ended up saving about 30 to $40 million on that deal. And so, so that uh, experience showed us that what you read in the papers about housing costs and the cost of construction in that market aren't necessarily applicable to what's happening in commercial. We are seeing some trades uh, spike their pricing, but in many ways, we're still not back to pricing uh, that we saw pre-COVID. So that's a volatile market, and it's one that we pay a lot of attention to because that's, you know, building a building is you're just buying it slowly over time, and, and your, your basis obviously matters. So um, you and Amazon are building not only an incredible community for their HQ2, but you want to make it the most technologically advanced infrastructure in the country. And you signed a partnership with AT&T at National Landing to create an advanced 5G network. I actually read a press release that you all put out that you just got the Arlington County Board just gave you rights to use, I got to get this right, the excess dark fiber and conduit access in National Landing. So first of all, Parse that for me. Are you going into the dark web, Matt? I, I, I read that. I was like, he's going to the dark web. I'm not sure what's down there, but he's going in there. But what is it that you and you are doing as it relates to creating this 5G network? And, and quite honestly, we've all talked about a future, uh, a city of the future. And Google spent a ton of t- time and money trying to create the city of the future up in Toronto and completely backed off of all of that. It seems like you have the size and the scale and the focus with a partner like Amazon to really show us what the at least community, maybe not city, but community of the future is going to look like. So what does this partnership and what does getting access to the Arlington County dark, dark pipe mean? So uh, great question. We, a couple of years ago, right after winning HQ2, we we went to Seattle and we sat down with uh, the major tenant brokers in that market and a lot of the big tech companies that are there. And we asked them, we said, okay, you followed Amazon here or, or so it would appear. Why did you do that? And the number one answer was talent. We can hire people here. We like, they like to hire uh, Amazon employees because they're well-vetted, well-trained, well-screened, but they also like the talent pool in that market. Generally, we have that. Okay. Check. Um, they said, we value uh, robust, redundant, ubiquitous connectivity. And we said, we sort of thought, well, isn't, doesn't every major gateway city have that? Isn't, aren't, aren't we awash in fiber and everything else? And the, you know, the short answer is no, it's, it's not consistent. We don't have it everywhere. And we certainly don't have the latest, you know, Wi-Fi 6 and 5G and all the other things that are coming along next. We spent some time with Virginia Tech and their team. They're real leaders in wireless communications. And as you know, we're, 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 we're helping them develop and develop around their new innovation campus in Alexandria. And they said, you know, you guys uh, are in a great position as a dominant real estate owner to be a real facilitator of 5G connectivity. 
And I will tell you, we knew very little about this a couple of years ago, but we, we invested some resources in building out our team and um, bringing on advisors to help us get smart. And what they said was essentially, if you own enough of the physical environment, you can facilitate 5G connectivity because you have to hang these antennas in a lot of different places. You don't have to negotiate with 50 different landlords to get it done. You can, you can essentially offer the service on a ubiquitous basis in your neighborhood by controlling building facades. And if you already control them, you probably have one of the more complicated elements of the mosaic that you need to do this. But there's more to it than just that. You should ideally have access to or control of wireless spectrum. You should have control of redundant fiber connectivity. That's where Arlington County comes in. Arlington had laid a lot of this, but had, had not partnered with service providers yet. And we were already in discussions with a lot of service providers to help activate the 5G network that we plan to roll out and, um, to, and, and to be a part of deploying the spectrum that we acquired from the FCC last summer. So the deal we put in place with AT&T is one that will allow us through them as a service provider and others who will come along hereafter to provide the 5G connectivity service that our customers want and to do it on a, a robust, redundant fiber backbone that is, has now been supplemented by what Arlington County had already invested in and to do it in a way that will allow us to deliver that service inside the buildings and outside the buildings and to use our spectrum that we acquired, the CBRS spectrum, to offer private cellular networks, again, through service providers, uh, so that tenants who want to innovate, tenants who have autonomous robots or vehicles or any, anything uh, you know, in, in what you would think of as the internet of things that needs to communicate rapidly over high speeds, get to edge data centers, do it in an urban environment where there's lots of interference, but where it can still function, we want them to want to come here because we will have no kidding 5G, no kidding ubiquitous fiber, uh, indoor and outdoor 5G, edge data computing where you don't have to go all the way out to Ashburn data centers to process your data and allow your device to function. And we can do all of that in part because we own a lot of the physical real estate and we now have deals with fiber to supplement that with the county. But we can also do it because we're not in it for the data. We're not like you know some of these examples you, you laid out where the objective was to get people's data. We don't care about that. We, we want our customers to want to come here because they can do things here they can't do anywhere else. And so we just wanted to have enough control of these assets so that we could identify the right partners, have them commit to do it quickly, and have partners who were aligned with us in providing good service for their customers, not using it as a backdoor way of trying to get access to customers' data. And so, and that's the partnership we have with Arlington County, with AT&T. Uh, we're all very well aligned on that score. And by the way, that's what our customers want to hear too. And so uh, we think it's a, a real, you know, win-win of a partnership and one that you're going to hear a lot more about in the coming years as we continue to put together you know, deals with other service providers to, to really roll this out. And you'll see 5G operability you know, actually uh, accessible by 2022 in this submarket with, with everything that we're doing and the partners we have in place, which will make us, I think, one of the first big urban concentrations in the country to be able to do that. Is there anything from an autonomous vehicles 
standpoint that would allow you to provide transportation inside this community that is distinct from other places in the country? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what you'll see, autonomous vehicles are, are, have to process tremendous amounts of data in order to, to function properly. And they have, in other cities, built these little purpose-built ecosystems for them. And where they start is you know, low levels of interference. They just want to get the concept right. Autonomous vehicles need to be able to work in a you know, interference-laden urban environment with lots of moving people and other cars and airplanes flying overhead and helicopters and other things. And by having 5G operability and by having the high-speed redundant fiber connectivity and by having edge data computing nodes, which is the next phase of what we're working on, we'll be able to provide operators of those kinds of devices with the infrastructure they need to enable their product to function. So it will make our submarket a perfect test bed for somebody who wants to innovate and develop and not do it in a cornfield somewhere, but actually do it in a real city. And then, oh, by the way, you know, maybe bring some lawmakers over across the river to see what they're doing and to see, you know, th this is innovation at work and this is what the future could look like. And I think that's a really powerful combination. It's super powerful. It's really exciting. And it, it's by far the most technologically advanced in the built world of anything that's going on out there right now. In other words, I don't, I don't know another developer who is at this cutting edge because of the partner you have, because of the scale you've been able to amass and the ability to, if you will, change the dynamic between the technology providers, the cellular providers, the county, and what you're building. And it's, it's super exciting. And I can't wait to see as you take your team and as you continue to build there, what that ends up producing. As you can imagine, Matt, I could keep going, but I told you it'd be just an hour and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go. And thank you for spending the last hour with me. It's I love doing these, particularly when I'm talking to a friend and someone I've known for a long period of time. JBG and WD have a long, long, long history, as you well know. We actually provided JBG with its first loan ever uh, that yeah. my dad did for Donald Brown back in the 1960s. And um, uh, as you also know, Don Brown and Mike Glosserman and the rest of your partners have all been dear friends of mine over a very, very long period of time. So I'm uh, extremely appreciative of you spending the time today sharing your insights on the markets. Congrats on all you've done at JBG, and I look forward to seeing you when I'm back in D.C. Appreciate you having me, and I look forward to that as well. I'm I, uh, honored to be uh, asked to do this and uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Matt. I hope everyone has a great day. We'll see you again next week on another Walker webcast. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.